Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, we are thrilled to have you here. Welcome to Modern Day Debate. We are a channel that hosts debates on science, religion, and politics. And we try to do it with the goal and vision of giving everyone their fair shot to make their case on an equal playing field. And want to let you know we're very excited. If it's your first time here, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more debates to come. And want to let you know up front as well, just a couple of quick things. First, we are thrilled to let you know that Modern Day Debate has invaded the podcast world. So this is an addition to the YouTube channel. If you have not found us on your favorite podcast app, let us know. We will work to get on there. Also want to let you know, throughout the debate, starting now even, if you happen to have a question for the speakers, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. And also want to let you know that you can do that starting now and Super Chat is an option, in which case you can not only ask a question, but if you'd like to make a comment toward one of the speakers or both of the speakers, you can, and they of course would get a chance to respond to it. We ask that you just be your regular friendly selves, folks, and just show them the kindness and respect they deserve. We are honored to have these guys here, and that's why I'm going to introduce them to you right now. want to let you know, David C. Smalley hosts a very popular podcast and so it's formerly known as dogma debate now known as david c smalley and i want you guys to know that his links are in the description and i want to say just first thanks david for being here with us it's a pleasure to have you if you want to share just about uh, i think a lot of people if they enjoy a modern day debate they would love your david c smalley podcast and so if you want to share we'd love to hear about just what you've been up to there thanks for being here david yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, essentially, I do what you, what you do, except I'm the guest all the time. Um, I just bring people on my show who typically disagree with my worldview, whether it's religion. It's usually religion. Sometimes it's politics or whatever. And I just I extend the olive branch and have peaceful, respectful, fun conversations with people who completely disagree with me and my worldview. So uh, that's really why I started the show 10 years ago. Uh, it's been a, a pretty good success. It's what I do full time now. And between that and stand up comedy, that's how I make my living. So, yeah, I would love everybody to go check it out. I'm everywhere at David C. Smalley, whether it's Instagram, Twitter or my website. And um, if you want to be a guest on my show, you go to davidcsmalley.com, click be a guest and you can come on my show to tell me why you disagree with me and why I'm wrong. I welcome. Absolutely. And we are also excited to introduce, I want to introduce, before we introduce Randall Rouser, I, I just want to mention that those of you, have, you've probably seen Carissa has been here. She's debated before. She is our co-host and co-moderator tonight. She'll be getting us started in just a second after I introduce Randall. But I do want to let you know, she has debated not only on Modern Day Debate, she's debated on other channels as well. And so I just want to say thank you, Carissa, for co-hosting tonight, as well as kind of co-moderating. And we really do appreciate you being here with us. Oh, I, I'm very, very happy I can. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely. It's our pleasure 
And want to let you know, folks, if you have not seen Dr. Randall Rouser's debates, he has many debates on many places. So, for example, if you guys have listened to, you probably heard of Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, a very popular podcast on topics of philosophy of religion. He has debated there as well as on Capturing Christianity, another very popular channel. And want to say, Dr. Randall Rouser, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Want to let you know that not only has he debated, but actually he has written a number of books, one of which I have linked in the description for you as well. So if you'd like to check that out, folks, want to highly encourage you to check out his links as well. And so, Dr. Randall Rouser, if you want to share just a little bit about your book, because I loved the title and the subtitle were really interesting for this. And so if you'd like to share about your book as well as other projects you're working on, we'd love to hear just what you've been up to. Sure. Uh, thanks, James. So, uh, yeah, this is my 12th book and it just came out this month. It, it's out right now in soft cover. We'll be out in Kindle within a couple of days. It's called Conversations with My Inner Atheist. And so it's uh, 25 chapters of a Christian having a conversation uh, with himself by the through this metaphor of an inner atheist about various difficult topics. So it's a lot of fun to write. In terms of new projects, I think my next project is scrambling to get course prep for the fall because I'm a professor. And we have a strange new world of COVID-19 and uh, trying to figure out classes online. So that's what I'm dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going through the same thing. So I absolutely. And we are we appreciate you making time. I was just telling someone I was feeling overwhelmed about the transition. So we are excited to get this get the ball rolling. And so I'm going to hand it over to Carissa. She'll go over the format and then get the speaker started. And I will be keeping an eye for your questions in the live chat, folks. Thanks so much, Carissa. The floor is all yours. Thank you so much, James. So first off, we're gonna start off with like a 10 minute opening statement. Um, first from the affirmative, um, Dr. Rouser, and then followed up by uh, David. And then we're gonna get into about an hour of just discussion. Um, and then after that, we're gonna follow it up with a half an hour of questions and answers. So first off, um, Dr. Rouser, since you're the affirmative, would you like to uh, give your opening statement? Sure, thanks. So I will say that James says it doesn't have to, like, like there's not going to be a cane that'll pull me sideways if I go over 10 minutes. I could go maybe 30 seconds over or whatever. So I'm going to aim for that 10 minutes, though. All right, That's fine. <laughs> okay. So my thanks to, to James for inviting me to debate and to David C. Smalley for agreeing to participate. So the question of the debate is this. Is belief in the Christian God rational? I mean, that's the way that this question was presented to me. But of course, if the Christian description of God is true, then Christianity is true, and thus to ask whether the Christian God is rational as an object of belief just is to ask whether Christianity is rational. So I am going to proceed on the assumption that the essence of debate concerns whether Christian belief can be rational. And in this debate, I will argue, yeah, indeed, Christian belief can be rational. Now, I'm going to define Christianity as a religion that consists of a particular set of doctrines, including the Trinity, fall, Israel Covenant, Incarnation, Atonement, Resurrection, Second Coming, Bible as a medium of special revelation. In short, what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. Notably, mere Christianity does not include any specific interpretation of any of those doctrines. So beware of attempts to argue for the irrationality of Christianity based on the alleged irrationality of some subset of Christian opinion. For example, in the same way that one does not establish the irrationality of philosophical naturalism simpliciter by attacking the rationality of some specific interpretation 
of philosophical naturalism, such as reductive materialism. So one does not establish the irrationality of mere Christianity by attacking the irrationality of some specific version of Christianity, such as North American Protestant fundamentalism. Next, how do we define rationality? Well, for the purposes of this debate, I'll define rationality in terms of a classic virtue. A virtue is a disposition to behave rightly and is contrasted with a vice, which is a disposition to behave wrongly. In Aristotle's account, a virtue is a golden mean, a disposition balanced between two extremes, the vice of deficiency and the vice of excess. For example, in between the vice of cowardice, a deficiency, and the vice of foolhardiness, an excess, one finds the virtue of courage. In between the vice of stinginess, a deficiency, and the vice of extravagance, an excess, stands the virtue of generosity. When it comes to the regulation of belief and proper belief formation, we find that rationality stands in between the vice of extreme unwarranted skepticism, a deficiency, and the vice of extreme credulity, an excess. In other words, rationality is the virtue of having cognitive capacities properly formed so that one believes when it is appropriate to do so and abstains from belief when it is appropriate to do so, thereby avoiding the irrationality of either excess skepticism or credulity. Importantly, rationality encompasses not simply proper beliefs as an output, but also the proper reasoning processes by which that belief is formed. It involves the articulation of the logical relationship between various truth claims, the valid movement from premises to conclusion, the assessment of intrinsic and contextualized probability and plausibility, and an awareness of one's own cognitive biases and an attempt to redress them. Keep in mind as well that an ascription of virtue is to some degree contextualized. To illustrate, if Mike Tyson insults a man's girlfriend, is it virtuous for that man to ask Tyson to step outside? Well, that depends on who the man is. It would be foolhardy for P.B. Herman to ask Tyson to step outside but it could indeed be courageous for a Golden Glove boxing champion to do so. My apologies for my dated cultural references, by the way. Thus, the same action can be foolhardy or courageous depending on who undertakes the action. Rationality is the same. Whether a particular belief is rational is typically context dependent as such judgments are made relative to specific individuals in particular contexts relative to their current beliefs and experiences. For example, if a man standing on a street corner advises Smith that a new drug will protect him against rational for Smith to believe him. Well, that depends. If Smith recognizes the man as Dr. Anthony Fauci, then it may indeed be rational for him to believe it. Whereas if Smith does not recognize the man, it would be probably irrational for him to believe it. So the rationality of Smith's assent is relative to his background beliefs, such that as the belief that the man is a respected infectious disease specialist. When a person claims that all expressions of a complex and diverse belief system or worldview are irrational, they have a high burden of proof to demonstrate that there is no possibility for that belief system to be assented to rationally, ranging across all the diverse sets of beliefs and experiences by adherents of that belief system or worldview. For example, some theists claim that all atheists are irrational. While there certainly may be irrational atheists, to make the claim that atheism is always irrational 
such that all 250 million atheists globally are irrational, irrespective of their background beliefs and experiences. Well, that assumes a very high evidential burden. In like manner, some atheists argue that all Christians are irrational. While there certainly may be instances where Christians are irrational, to make the claim it is always irrational, such that all 2.3 billion plus Christians globally are irrational, again, irrespective of background belief and experience, well, that too assumes a very high evidential burden. The more than 2 billion Christians on planet Earth form their beliefs under a dizzyingly diverse range of circumstances, testimony, reasoned argument, experience, and so on. What is the basis to believe that Christian belief formation is always irrational, ranging across all of these circumstances? At this point, it would be helpful to focus, I think, on a specific example. So let's consider two cases of belief formation by way of parental testimony. We'll begin with atheist Richard Dawkins, who recalls in one of his essays, I was driving through the English countryside when, with my daughter, Juliet, then aged six, and she pointed out some flowers on the wayside. I asked her what she thought wildflowers were for. She gave a rather thoughtful answer. Two things, she said, to make the world pretty and to help the bees make honey for us. I was touched by this and sorry, I had to tell her it wasn't true. Now Dawkins is teaching Juliet a disteleological view of nature, a view that is consistent with naturalism and atheism, but not with various other views, including Christian theism. Well, was Juliet rational to believe her father's testimony? As noted above, one is indeed rational to accept the testimony of another person and certainly a trusted parental authority, unless one has overriding reason not to. In fact, philosophers call this the principle of testimony. So the onus would be on the critic to provide good reasons why Juliet could not be rational to accept the testimony of her father as to the dysteleology of nature. Unless and until those good reasons are provided, we should conclude that Juliet is rational. Well, now let's come to our second scenario. Rather than Dawkins and Juliet in the countryside, our countryside is now being visited by renowned British theoretical physicist and Anglican priest, John Polkinghorne, and his daughter, Isabel. Isabel also says the flowers are to make the world pretty and to help the bees make honey for us. And Polkinghorne, a Christian who accepts teleology in nature says, yes, Isabel, God made the flowers to make the world pretty and give him praise. And with that, they continue on their way as Polkinghorne then begins to describe to her the mysteries of Schrodinger's cat. Just as Juliet was rational to accept her father's testimony as to the dysteleology of nature, so Isabel was rational to accept her father's testimony as to the divinely given teleology of nature. So the onus is on the critic, in this case, David, to provide good reasons why Isabel and her famous father could not be rational in precisely the same way as Juliet and her father. The rationality of accepting parental testimony is but one of the initial steps in the rationality of Christianity. As a Christian, I personally have devoted careful attention to proper reasoning processes in support of my beliefs. I have a PhD in systematic theology from a leading British research university. I've defended my views in many debates such as this one. I've also participated in devil's advocate debates in which I defend atheism because the ability to defend the views of one's interlocutor is a hallmark of rationality and intellectual virtue. And I've published several books defending my beliefs, most recently, Conversations with My Inner Atheist. 
It would be a downer if after all these efforts, I have not even succeeded in meeting the minimal bar of basic rationality. But I believe I have provided excellent reasons to believe that I and countless Christians like me can at least meet the minimal threshold of being rational. To conclude, I've argued that rationality is the mean between excessive skepticism and excessive credulity. We are rational to accept the deliverances of the complex doxastic processes by which we naturally form beliefs, sense perception, rational intuition, uh, testimony, memory, etc., unless we have a good reason to doubt them. Uh, this includes both those who acquire beliefs consistent with views such as atheism, as in the case of Dawkins and Juliet, as well as views such as Christianity, as in the case of Polkinghorne and Isabel. Unless and until a person can provide a powerful argument that all 250 million atheists are irrational, one should conclude that many of them are indeed rational. Likewise, unless and until a person can provide a powerful argument that all 2.3 billion plus Christians are irrational, one should conclude that many of them likewise are rational. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Rouser, for that opening speech. Um, David, if you wanted to go ahead and, um, and give your speech, that would be wonderful. Sure, yeah, and I certainly uh, wanna thank everyone for having me, uh, as well as Randall for agreeing to do this. And it won't be a big deal if that was more than 10 minutes, because I doubt very seriously I'll use all of mine, because uh, I much prefer to jump into the conversation piece anyway. <clears throat> um, I just wanna say that to, to start, I make a clear distinction between people versus their beliefs. Um, I would never say that all Christians are irrational, even though um, it, I believe Christianity in itself is irrational because I think an otherwise rational person can believe something that is irrational if they were indoctrinated or have high emotions attached to it or have gone through trauma or whatever. So. To say that a person has an irrational belief is not to say they are irrational all the time. I also want to say that um, this idea that if the only way for me to say it's irrational is for me to pick some very specific odd version of Christianity and argue against that, I'll go ahead and ease your mind right now and say I never do that. That's not at all what my scope is because the very core belief of Christianity is that a dead Jew came back to life and then floated to heaven and somehow disintegrated into a spiritual world with a physical body. Regardless of your denomination, regardless of what tabernacle or, or name is on your church, that is irrational. Uh, we have no record of it ever happening at any point in history, and the only people who say it happened are people that we just have to take their word for it, who wrote this down in these books. And so um, that brings me to uh, Randall's other point, which was about someone being believable or not, or a trustworthy source to give that such testimony. And I loved it when he said that. If, if Dr. Anthony Fauci says that this is the thing and he's a specialist in that, it is rational to believe him. It may also be rational to fact check him, by the way, but it's rational to believe him as long as the stakes aren't very high. But 
if the person is just some random Joe off the street who wants to tell you that masks don't even help or masks actually make you sicker or that uh, this thing isn't even real, there's not even a real virus. If he doesn't have the credentials, it is irrational to believe him. So why do you believe the authors of the Bible? You don't know anything about them. We don't know if they were liars. We don't know if they were thieves. We assume they were human sinners from the perspective of Christians, but we don't know anything about them. In fact, we don't even know who actually wrote that. I mean, we know that it's the gospel according to Luke or according to Mark. Was there an actual person named Mark? I don't think scholars are completely set on that. We, and also, the original that was written is much different in many cases than the multiple translations or the multiple versions we have access to today. So your faith isn't so much in Jesus or God as it is in the people who wrote that stuff down. Because if, if he had written that, you know, when, when he appeared to the 500, for example, if they had left a zero off, we would be arguing today that he appeared to 50. If he had added a zero, the Christians would be saying with full confidence, Jesus appeared to 5,000 people. No, one person wrote down the number 500. Who actually wrote that down? Well, let's say it was Paul, or let's say it was this guy. Do you know for sure? Do you know for sure that Paul didn't write five and a scribe later changed it to 50? The Bible has undergone so many changes and alterations and translations with anonymous scribes between us reading it and them writing it in the original that I don't know that we can say with clarity exactly who these people were, what their agenda was, and what was going on. With that in mind, they might as well be that random guy off the street telling you not to wear a mask. You have no idea who wrote that book. You definitely know it's not a Dr. Anthony Fauci, but you're believing with faith that this person is trustworthy because they're saying something that already comports with your preconceived worldview and your confirmation bias wants you to believe it even though it is entirely irrational. One of the final points I'll make is we do believe people all the time. We believe random statements all the time from random people. If I say, I used to work at uh, Coca-Cola. Okay, why not believe me? I didn't, by the way. Hashtag not a sponsor. But if I, if I had, it wouldn't be a big deal, right? Who cares? If I'm talking to you about something and you're like, hey, where, where is this bottle? And I go, you know, here's the history between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. I used to work for Coca-Cola. Okay, that thing may go into your brain and you may spread that fact to someone else, whether it's wrong or right. But you have no reason to really doubt me because there's no real uh, consequences for believing or not believing. However, if I said to you, I used to work at Coca-Cola, and in fact, I walked out into the parking lot and made the entire corporate building float 20 feet in the air for about eight hours. And if you don't believe that I did that, I'm going to set your house on fire. Okay, well, now I've raised the stakes. Now it's really important. I've made an extraordinary claim, which suggests I should have an ex extraordinary evidence, as, as Hitchens said. So now, do you believe that? No, you won't believe that I did that. But if you don't, I'm going to set your house on fire. Well, why don't you believe it? Because that thing doesn't happen. People don't make buildings float. And if I did and I said, well, that's the, that's the beauty of it. That's the magic of it. It's the only time it's ever happened in the history of the world. That doesn't make it more believable, right? It's still illogical to believe that I did that. And if the stakes are higher, I should have even a greater burden of proof that I had the ability to do that, especially if I'm willing to harm you simply for not believing something irrational. 
So with that in mind, I've been in several of these debates. And as Randall said, I've also argued uh, as a Christian on my show against another atheist. And so I appreciate, uh, along with Rappaport's rules, being able to eloquently and, and, and correctly state your opponent's position back to them. Um, so as I've done that multiple times and had multiple debates on my show, it is quite often that the Christian says the onus is on the other guy. I think everyone knows that when you're in a debate and someone takes the affirmative, the affirmative should have the evidence. The negative side of the debate is evaluating whether or not your evidence is believable. And so um, I don't believe the onus is on me. And that's why I take the negative position in these debates. I don't have a, and we're not debating whether or not God exists. We're debating on whether or not this is rational to believe. And under any circumstance, I don't think it's ever been rational, regardless of education or debates or experience. At the end of the day, this is very simple. The core of the Christian belief is that a Jew died, resurrected after three days, and then floated to heaven with a physical body and somehow disintegrated into a spiritual world. That doesn't happen, and it's irrational to believe it did, regardless of how strong your faith actually is. Thank you so much, David. Um, if we would like to just get into some discussion, um, that would be great, um, about like 50 minutes to an hour, and then we'll head into question and answer. Yeah, that's awesome. This is going to be a lot of fun, I can tell. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna give you my, my initial quick response uh, to what uh, David said, and, and then a couple, couple maybe other points. I mean, of course, I don't wanna uh, blabber on for too long. So I'll just say a few things and then you could, David, you can come back and we'll just go from there. Okay, so it seems to me my initial take on, on what you've said is that you've done something which I find is very common, which is to map one's plausibility structure onto rationality simplicator. In other words, uh, you have a particular framework, what we call them plausibility structures, uh, to sort claims, truth claims, and the ones that you find intrinsically plausible or initially plausible and those that you don't. And then you simply use that and map that onto rationality so that anybody who doesn't share your plausibility framework is thereby irrational, uh, such as, you know, you're simply saying, well, it's just to believe that this dead Jewish person rose again, and then, as you put it, floated up into the heavens and disintegrated. Well, that's just, obviously, that's irrational. Well, the fact is that many people disagree with you. And I think the problem is that you are simply conflating or mistaking your own plausibility framework with rationality simplicator. The one other thing I'll say at the outset, and you can come back on that. Um, you talked about at the end about burden of proof, which I found that interesting. So you said uh, the person arguing the positive has the burden of proof, and that's why you take the negative. So kind of like the implying, I got an easy job because I don't have to defend anything. Actually, I think that's doubly mistaken. So the first point is, uh, imagine a debate between a person who believes there is a world external to our mind, such as what most people believe, and then a person who believes there is no world external to the human mind, such as George Barclay, the famous philosopher. His view was that there is no world external to the mind. So he's just denying, he's making a negative existential claim. On your view, George Barclay would not have any burden of proof to defend idealism because He's simply taken the negative view that there is no world external to the mind, but the world realist has the burden of proof because they've committed to arguing positively that there is, in fact, a world external to the mind. And I mean, that's absurd. Uh, clearly, Barclay does have to defend a position. 
now, of course, you could say, well, you know what, though? Barclay is, in fact, defending a positive position. He's defending idealism. That's a famous philosophical view. He's not just making a negative claim or no claim at all. He's making a positive claim about the nature of reality. Okay, that's a good comeback, but that is the same. That also applies to you. You're making a positive claim about 2.3 billion Christians being irrational. So you do have a positive claim that you have to defend. You've got a burden of proof just as surely as So let I. me let, let me just chime in. Yeah. I, I want to let you yeah. finish your your your. No, no, uh, no. I'm good. You can you can just go down. Well, I just want to reiterate. I said in, in my opening, Randall, that I do not think Christians are irrational, and you keep stating that back to me as if I said it. And I'm I want to be very clear up, up front. I am not talking about people. I am not saying Christians are irrational. I believe most Christians are rational. I, I, that's my position completely. They use uh, uh, their, their rationale every day. They go to work. They understand what time they need to be there. They put one foot in front of the other. They don't stand on their porch and pray to float to their car. They use their, their, their uh, rational mind on a regular basis. So please understand that when I talk about the, it's, it's the, to believe in the Christian, Christian God is irrational. That doesn't make the person irrational. I think it's a, there are other external situations that lead a person to believe, whether it be most of the time it's indoctrination. Most of the time it's, if it's not that, it's usually a traumatic event or what they feel is a personal experience that happened to them because they were raised to believe it. So when something happened, they put those pieces together and it further confirmed their belief. I don't think they are irrational people. I just want to be clear about that. Okay, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and accuse you of an informal fallacy of equivocation here. I hate doing that, but I got to do it because it's a debate. So I want to mix it up, keep it interesting for people. So when, you, when one engages in a fallacy of equivocation, right, they're, they're blending two distinct concepts together. You're saying, I'm not arguing that Christians are irrational, they are rational. Okay, but uh, what you're doing there is you're conflating, I think, these two different concepts of rationality. One is generally rational in life, and the other is rational qua or with respect to this specific set of beliefs, namely Christianity. And that is indeed all we're talking about here. We're simply talking about with respect to Christian beliefs. You've made a claim with respect to Christian beliefs that all 2.3 billion Christians are irrational. And that's all I'm talking about here. I'm not attributing to you the claim that Christians are generally irrational so that, uh, you know, we cannot... We cannot make informed economic or political decisions or something else. No, I, I, I recognize that, that you concede that point. We're only talking about the irrationality of Christianity, and that nonetheless is a positive claim that you are committed to. You are arguing that 2.3 billion Christians are irrational with respect to their Christian belief. Yeah, again, within Rappaport's rules, and I know you're an educated man, and I know you are familiar with that. Uh, Dan Dennett writes about it often in his books. Uh, in order to adequately respond to one's argument, you should be able to adequately uh, recite their argument back to them in a way that they would say, yeah, that's, that's my position completely. And you're just not doing that with all due respect. Uh, it's, that's just not my position at all. Um, I think that oftentimes throughout my experience talking with Christians, um, it seems that Christians will take a single behavior, not every time, not all Christians, but Christians often take, on my show anyway, a single behavior and apply that to the character of the individual. Uh, meaning, um, have you ever stolen? 
well, then you're a thief. Have you ever told a lie? Then you're a liar. And it's usually a, more of the like fire and brimstone style apologist that just wants to trap you into saying that you're a wicked, wicked person and you were born evil and you should be apologizing and all of that. But I'll say to them, well, if I've uh, stolen something, that's something I did that was a mistake. If I've lied, it's something that I did to maybe save someone's life or to help someone who had a medical condition. There may be justifications for some of these things. And even if it was completely wrong, that could be a mistake I made in my past and I've moved past that now. Uh, there are people who harmed people or were very violent or were gang members and are now, you know, preachers that are traveling the country telling kids not to do that are they still a gang member are they still violent are they still um, a rapist are they still a crackhead no uh, and so i don't think that so for me to say and I, we really shouldn't hang up this entire debate on this one thing but for me to say that someone made an irrational decision or that it's irrational to believe in the core of christianity or in the christian god um and and oh, let me just finish that statement um, it is not, and I'm, this is the last time I'm going to say it, it is not to say all Christians are irrational. I can say that a person who goes to work every day and takes care of their kid and pays their bills on time and will sit and do puzzles, which is a, a very strong sign of rationality, putting the pieces together. Someone can follow basic logical syllogisms and, and come to conclusions. They can do homework. They can do math. They can do spreadsheets. They know how to operate a computer. But then they have this belief that they can control rainbows. They feel strongly spiritually connected to the earth, even as a non-believer, that they can walk outside and command a rainbow to appear. It is irrational to believe that, but would I call that person irrational as the core of their being? Absolutely not. They have something in them that's making them believe something irrational. David, I said, that doesn't I mean they are a irrational person. I didn't attribute to you the language at the core of their being, they are irrational. In fact, I quite explicitly said, the focus of this debate is solely on Christian beliefs. So for example, I have a good friend. He's a physicist. He teaches at the University of Alberta. His name is Don Page. He was the chief research assistant for Richard uh, for Stephen Hawking between 1977 and 1978. He's a world leader on the origin of galaxies. And he's a Christian. He's a devout Mennonite. And I think that you would certainly recognize he's very rational with respect to most of his life. Okay. But you have staked out a position that by implication, Don Page is irrational with respect to his Christian beliefs. And that's okay. all that we're talking about. We're not talking about the core of beings or something else. That's fine. Now, now um, you said uh, you made a concept or a, a suggestion that, well, one of the catalysts for most Christians is indoctrination. I just uh, don't want to get on a tangent here, but I'd like to, to hear your thoughts as to whether or to what degree you think atheists or naturalists or secularists might indoctrinate. And I'll give you a specific example. So this is Barbara Ehrenreich. She herself is an atheist. And she says this in one of her books. Oh, actually in an essay. She says, I was raised in a real strong secular humanist family, the kind of folks who ground you for a week just for thinking of dating a Unitarian or worse. Not that they were hardliners though. We had over 70 Bibles lying around the house where anyone could browse through them. Gideon's my dad had removed from the hotel rooms he'd stayed in. And I remember how he gloried at every Gideon he lifted, thinking of all the traveling salesmen whose minds he probably saved from dry rot. Looking back, I guess you could say I never really had a choice. What with my parents always preaching, think for yourself, think for yourself. Do you think it's possible that 
atheists, secularists, humanists, naturalists can indoctrinate as well? Of course it's possible. Um, okay. I actually just covered this on my most recent podcast, and I would encourage everyone to go listen. Uh, I talked with a uh, youth pastor, John Gary, who's been on my show multiple times, specifically about atheists indoctrinating their kids. For the most part, I would say if, if it was a Venn diagram, um, more people who indoctrinate their kids are Christian. I think most atheists uh, don't. I think most atheists perhaps tell their kids what they believe, but when the child asks, uh, do you believe in God? Especially if one parent does, one parent doesn't. The atheist parent typically responds, I don't know, what do you think? Because the core, and we talk about this at our conventions and all the science conferences and atheist conferences, our core message is teach your kids how to think, not what to think. In, in Barbara's situation, she was very likely indoctrinated into, into uh, secular humanism. Uh, I definitely taught my daughter what I think is the best worldview, and I would never apologize for that. But I also re read uh, children's Bibles with her. I taught her about Thor. I taught her about all sorts of mythology. And I said, you know, this is, this, these are all the things out there. On Easter, I would sit down and explain to her about the goddess of Esther and fertility. And she's one of the few young people who understand why we have an Easter bunny and eggs on Easter. Uh, she understands the reality and where that actually goes back to and that it had nothing to do with Jesus originally. I, tell, I teach her accurate history. Um, but to your question, is it possible? Of course it's possible. I just don't think it happens near as much because the key with indoctrination is teaching someone this is the only immutable truth. Christians by nature do that. This is the truth. God is watching you. If you don't believe, you're going to be thrown into a lake of fire. Like there's all sorts of brands of this, right? But it's this idea that God is real and this is the reality. And a lot of times anything outside of that will break family bonds. Atheists will typically go, I don't believe this stuff, but here's a book on Jesus. Here's a book on Thor. Here's a book on Demeter. Here's a book on you know, Krishna and how he was hanged in a tree and his blood ran down to redeem the earth. Gosh, that sure sounds familiar. Uh, we teach our kids about all sorts of mythology. So I then asked my listeners, I said, even if you're an adult, I want you to write me and tell me if you're still afraid or have ever been afraid to tell your parents that you were an atheist. And I received an influx of messages. Only one atheist so far out of the thousands or hundreds of thousands who've listened to the podcast. I haven't checked the downloads yet. One atheist said, hey, I must be the outlier. My parents definitely raised me to believe that there was no God for sure. Okay, so yeah, it happens, but not on the grand scale that indoctrination happens within Christianity. Okay, uh, you've, got a, you've got some anecdotal experiences there that you interpret in support of generalized statistical norms over populations. I mean, the next challenge would be to uh, provide rigorous statistical evidence if you want to make statistical generalizations. But now, hold on, I'm sorry. Adopted... Oh. Randall, yeah. you just provided yeah. anecdotal evidence from Barbara's perspective, and now you're accusing me of doing that to defend myself. Yes, because I'm not making any claim about the ratios within populations. I gave one specific anecdote, which would provide evidence that at least one person was indoctrinated. I'm sorry, is this what debate must, about the I'm rationality not, David, of Christianity or about atheists indoctrinating their kids? Because I'd like to stay on the topic. Yeah. So, so the point I'm making is that you're, you're providing evidence, you're making claims, which I'm just pointing out that you didn't provide statistical claims to support there being more Christians indoctrinated than atheists. How oh, many I think Christian, it's very, I, how many Christian I think it's kids very do you clear. think are indoctrinated? 
I mean, 100%. I guess I guess I could. Are you are you honestly saying that you think more atheists indoctrinate their kids than Christians? I see a lot of indoctrination in the atheist community. I, I don't think, know. I can't make generalizations because I don't have statistical generalizations, so I won't make them. What would the what would the atheist what would the atheist one, even one say challenge. to the kid as, I hate to, as par, the threat? Pardon my interruption. I, so sorry, guys. Just to technically, we are kind of off of topic. Unless there's yeah. a way in which, if there's an explanation of like how this directly kind of relates to whether or not Christian belief is rational, we can cope. We can keep going with, with it. Otherwise, let's, uh, yeah. Let's come back to Christian belief. So, so David, like what? How many kids do you think are indoctrinated? And what happens to the rest of them, the Christian kids? Okay, that's not the point of the debate either, Randall. No, no, because 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 the, the point because of the debate say, is the irrationality of Christianity. Like if so you I'm say my, respond, my daughter I'm gonna wasn't indoctrinated, line, then what was she? So I'm going to respond in line yeah. with the debate topic that we agreed to talk about here. So not only is the core of Christianity, which you still haven't addressed, by the way, in my opening remark, which was a response to yours, that this Jewish believing guy died and then rose from the dead. Let's just stop there. Resurrecting from the dead is irrational. Uh, and then a human physical body with bones and flesh ascending or floating up to the sky, where did it go? There is not a heaven up there. There is no firmament in the sky. Uh, the original words for that meant something solid. We now know that's not the case because we fly through what's called the firmament every time we're on, a, on an airplane. So now believing that he went up to something is irrational. And then how did his body disintegrate into what? How did he become a spirit? Where did his flesh go? Where did his bone go? You have to suspend rationality in order to believe this. And then we have this whole other problem with this, the, the, the contradictions of God himself in the Old Testament. Is, okay, well, let, as, let, as Dan let, Barker said- it, How about we address the first bit there? Okay. Okay, so um, let, let me do two things. So the first thing I think, uh, one problem with your opening statement at the beginning was you pointed to what you believe are alleged defeaters for the truth of Christianity. So you said, well, yeah, there, there's not good evidence in your view for the resurrection of Jesus. And you extrapolate from that, that for example, Isabel would be irrational to accept the testimony of her father, John Polkinghorne, the physicist, Anglican priest. But that doesn't follow because there can be good objections to a view and a person can still be rational to accept the view, particularly if not, they're not even aware of those defeaters. There are, for example, good objections to moral realism. And yet most parents, I think, are perfectly justified in teaching their children the difference between good and evil, teaching their children that it is an objective difference, and the children are, are rational to accept that testimony. I mean, do you not agree with that? I agree with that. Okay. Uh, so then you would agree that even if there are defeaters for a particular view, a person can still be rational to accept the view. No. I think the person can be rational. I think the view itself can still be irrational, which I've said at least six times now. Like, which do you part? believe that there? Do you believe there are good objections to moral realism? Of course. Okay, but so then, can a parent be rational to teach their child the difference between good and evil as an objective truth, and can the child be rational to accept? Within reason, I suppose. Okay, then, but then that's the same to... parallel with Isabel and John Polkinghorne, that Polkinghorne can testify to her certain truths, he believes things to be true, such as the teleology of nature or the fact that God made creation. She could be rational to accept that, even if there are defeaters that you believe are significant against Christianity. Well, when you're talking about a parent, you're also talking about a very strong difference in mental capacity. Uh, a parent telling a child something um, 
I believe that that would probably slide the scale of rationality when you're talking about a, a rationality when talking about a child. Um, but I want to know from you which part is rational about Christianity, the the dead guy coming back to life. Do you find that rational? Do you find it rational that a human body floated and and ascended? It, what about that is rational? Is it rational that he disintegrated and his bones turned into something else and he ended up in a spiritual realm? Where, where's the rationality within those three pieces of your belief? Yeah, so this is a, a good So first of all, I, I want to just underscore the last point so we don't forget it, and then we'll, we can move on to that. So you are conceding that, that there can be objections to a view, and yet a person who's unaware of those objections can rationally accept that view, even if you think they're significant objections. That's Such not a concession. I never, I never disagree. I never disagreed with that. Yes, to but the implication with. is that Isabel can be rational to accept the, the implication is you're avoiding answering my question and you're talking around the topic we agree to talk about. Right no, now. so please this is, this answer is my the question. Topic. This is the topic. Can Isabel be rational? Yes, by implication, if she can be rational to accept moral realism, when there are good arguments for anti-realism, she can be rational to accept Christianity, even though there are good objections to Christianity in your view. That is Again, directly the topic, because it follows that not all Again. people are automatically irrational, as you claim. Randall, you are still saying I am talking about people and their ability to be rational. Only with the respect topic to of this debate, The topic of this debate is, is it rational, meaning the belief? So we're uh, not even, yeah, so, yeah, we're talking belief, past each other. We're no, talking no, well, past the, each other. The beliefs are only rational, irrational with respect to believers who hold them. Beliefs that, don't no. exist out no, 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 in no, no, a no. nebulous realm without a believer and then have no. the status of being rational or irrational. Right, but you're trying to make my, you're strawmanning my position to make it sound no. like I am no. attacking individuals and saying they are not rational human beings. And that's not it. I'm not, no. I'm not concerned with, with, I believe you said his name was John and, and his daughter, Isabella. I'm not concerned with their ability to be rational. I've asked you a direct question. What is rational about a dead Jew coming back to life, floating up to the sky and disintegrating to a spiritual realm? Please provide an answer in your affirmative about how that is a rational thing yeah. to believe. Yeah. Okay. So, so, to con so we'll, we'll leave that behind. I'll note that Don Page, for example, I think he's, I think that you all, I already pointed out to you explicitly that I think you do recognize Don Page is usually rational, but you nonetheless do believe he's irrational with respect to his Christian faith. That's all we're talking about again. Okay. So have you looked at the evidence for the resurrection? Like, do you know why Christians believe that? Because as I said, one of the important aspects of rationality is the ability to steal man, the opponent. So what the way that I hear you talking about Christianity is a way of trying to make it look foolish in the same way that a Christian might say, do you know that naturalists believe the universe popped out of nothing? How ridiculous. And they believe that a human being came from a monkey, which came from goo. And that would just be a way of straw manning naturalism. You got to take it seriously. And you got to try to give it the strongest presentation, which is called steel manning. That's what that rationality looks like. So let's take a look at Paul, the Apostle Paul. Do you concede that the Apostle Paul wrote at least seven of his epistles, which is the vast majority of consensus of New Testament scholarship? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's look at uh, two of those epistles. Uh, in, Colossi in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and following. Now, do you, do you agree that 1 Corinthians 
is likely dated from the year 54? Or do you have a reason for dating it somewhere else? No, that's pretty close, yeah. Okay. That's that seems that seems to be the consensus of the um of the of the scholars. So yeah, I'm fine with that. Okay. So so in First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's writing back to this church that he had earlier visited in Corinth in about the year 51. He says, What I believe or, or what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That's official rabbinic language for the passing on of tradition. When you receive tradition from a rabbi, you faithfully pass on that tradition. So what Paul is noting there is he had earlier received a teaching within the church, and he received that, and then in about the year 51, he taught that to the Corinthians. Uh, and then he goes on and he says that Jesus died, uh, that he died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again, and then he was seen by Kephas, which is the name for Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus, and then he adds that that appears, most scholars believe that that's the original creedal form. And then Paul also adds 500 other brothers, and then he says, last of all, to me is to one I'm normally born. So then the next question is, when did Paul receive that teaching? Well, in one of his other letters, Galatians is commonly dated to around the year 49. Paul says in Galatians 1.18 that after his own conversion to Christianity, he traveled up to Jerusalem, three years later to meet with Peter, and he met with Peter for two weeks, and he also met with James, and he stayed with them to ensure that what he was teaching was the same thing as what they were teaching. Consequently, most New Testament scholars, and people have to understand that New Testament scholarship is not a pietistic endeavor. It includes atheists, it includes skeptics, uh, an atheist like uh, Gerd Ludemann, or you know, an agnostic like Bart Ehrman, so most scholars believe that Paul likely by that point would have received this creedal form in 1 Corinthians 15 from Peter, if not before. That means that it was already circulating in the area in Jerusalem in around the year 37. So even a scholar like James Dunn, who is not by any means a conservative Christian scholar, in his, in his book, Jesus, Jesus Raised, he dates that creedal form to approximately the year uh, 33, 34, within months of the death of Jesus. So what do you think of that? Because the question we have to ask, answer as historians is where did the belief, first of all, in the atoning death of Jesus come from? Because that's an extraordinary revelation or, or revolution in, in Jewish thinking because Jews believed in Deuteronomy, anyone who dies on a tree is cursed. Jesus was cursed, but was died on a tree. He was crucified. That was considered the most ignominious form of death in the Roman Empire. And yet they suddenly began to believe that Jesus was raised again. So what changed their belief that the person who had died cursed was in fact Messiah? Well, Paul gives it to us right there. He says that he was seen by Peter and James. Another thing we have to recognize is I that James- Just because there are so many, forgive me, I hate to interrupt Randall, just because there are so many ideas to kind of keep track of is that it, if we're able to summarize and then kick it over to David and then we'll give David okay. roughly a four minute response. Yeah, okay, I, I appreciate that. You know, the, the tough thing is that when somebody says, what's the evidence for this? I mean, I can go on for a long time, right? Because I I teach this stuff. Right. So um, so it places me at a disadvantage that people raise an extreme skeptical claim, and then I don't have the, the appropriate space to respond. But I, but I appreciate well, the and that's, I'll wrap up quickly. Well, I just want you to know, yeah. that's why I let people talk way more than I do on my own podcast, because I realize these questions have a long explanation and my yeah. atheist listeners get frustrated for me just sitting there and listening to the Christian talk. But to be fair, 
the, the short questions I ask do often have long answers. So I'm not offended at all that you sure. take more time to, to answer. Well, Don't yeah, I, I, I also recognize that the respect, the form of the parity of our conversation that we do have to be approximately equal. So, I mean, I'll just kind of to end with this. So the evidence in the gospels is that the brothers of Jesus were skeptics of his ministry during his life. There's something historians call the criterion of embarrassment that you don't include details that are embarrassing to your cause unless they're true. So John chapter seven, for example, refers to the brothers of Jesus as being skeptics. Likewise, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the family of Jesus is skeptical of his claims. And yet James is described as becoming one of the disciples. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, describes James as having been martyred in Jerusalem in the year 62 for his Christian faith. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So we have to explain what changed James's mind. And then another huge question is what changed Paul? Because there is not a, a notable historian who denies that Paul began as a persecutor of the Christians and then was converted to their cause. So, so what explains that? It's only when you begin to look at that data and then look at the resurrection as a hypothesis to explain the data, can you begin to appreciate the faith. Okay. So um, really what's at the core of all of this is he said, he said, he said, he said, he said, and he really believed it, and he really believed it, and he really believed it. Um, what we're talking about at the Apostles' Creed, we're talking about this passed-down sort of chant or, or poem, or I don't know how you would refer to it, uh, this, 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 this memorized story that was passed down through uh, rabbinical tradition. Now, we've all played the game of telephone. I know you've heard that argument a million times. When you pass things down, things can change. Um, and do you believe that Islam is a true religion? Do you, do you believe Muhammad is the one true prophet of Allah? Uh, no, you're a Christian. You, you don't believe that. Yet, if people being convinced by something is evidence for it being true, Islam is more true than Christianity because Islam is more popular than Christianity. So if your take is a lot of people believe that and a lot of people change their minds, that, that, that doesn't mean that thing is true because a lot of people have converted to Islam and there are powerful things like, like family structure. And I know tons of atheists who go to church, who say they believe and really don't for external reasons, family. They don't want to disappoint their grandma or whatever it is. They don't want to fight with their brother or their boss is a Christian and that's how you get promotions. Like it just, it just depends. So a lot of people believing something is, is, is not evidence that it's true. A guy writing it down is not evidence of it being true. People passing it down by memory is not evidence of it being true. It's evidence of it being successfully passed down, but it's very possible that these were fictional stories and that Jesus was deified over time. In fact, if you read uh, the gospels in the order, starting with Mark, seeing that it's the oldest, you'll see that he gets more deified as it goes. And by John, he is absolutely God. And it's this really powerful moment. But in Mark, Jesus is like, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except God alone. He doesn't really claim necessarily to be so holy early on. So it's almost as if the author of Matthew read Mark and added a little bit to the story. And then Luke read Matthew and added a little bit to the story. And then John kind of went haywire with it and made him completely deified. So people passing down information is not a way to determine whether or not it's true. We have old wives tales that we hear all the time. Like you can't go swimming for an hour after you eat. We've passed that down for years. 
and everybody's heard it. Multiple people have heard it. Other people have said, um, yeah, that's what my mom believed and, and my dad believed and my grandma always told me. And then when I went to my friend's house, his mom told me the same thing. We, it's not true. It, it, you're, you're not going to get a cramp in your stomach and die and drown because you went in after having a hot dog. Um, but we pass down wrong information all the time. Uh, so you can live in the South for 10 minutes and see that. So I'm, I'm not still convinced that he said this thing and he passed it down and a lot of other people believe that and people change their minds. That is not evidence that a dead man came back to life and floated to heaven and disintegrated to a spiritual world. You need much more extraordinary evidence for such an extraordinary claim. Okay, you, you referenced at the beginning the Apostles' Creed. I didn't reference the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed didn't come in its earliest form until the mid-2nd century. I was quoting 1 Corinthians 15, which is an early creedal form. Uh, you talk about the telephone game. Uh, the telephone game here does not apply. As I pointed out, a couple things. First of all, Paul's using formal rabbinic language here. Again, the, these were serious scholars uh, in, in an oral culture. Uh, they did just not make up stuff as they went along. They carefully ensured that what they were passing on was as they had received it. How do you know? Well, for example, you can take a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the fact that um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, then we now had a copy of the book of Isaiah, which is more than a thousand years earlier than the previously accessed oldest copy. And there were only minor grammatical differences between them. That's how you get stability of tradition because these people didn't just make up stuff as they went along. Uh, now, another thing, I pointed out, thing. another thing as it, I pointed out is that the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is dated to the 30s and it's dated to Jerusalem. So uh, this isn't something where there was time for a legend to develop. We have to look and explain through possible serious explanations as to what explained the origin that Jesus, this crucified individual, was in fact Messiah, which revolutionized the Jewish understanding of Messiahship because Jews believed the Messiah would either be a conqueror of the Romans and or a great priest, uh, not that he would die on a cross. The only category they have for dying on a cross was a cursed huckster. So the moment that Jesus died on a cross, they would have been out of there unless there was some catalyst for them to change their belief. And so you have to look seriously what that catalyst is. Now, even someone like Gareth Ludeman, who is an atheist and a New Testament scholar, he admits, as most New Testament scholars do, there is actually a consensus in the scholarship on this. And it, as in any field, a consensus doesn't automatically make it right, but you do have to take it seriously and look at why there is a consensus. There is a consensus that the disciples saw something, that they became convinced that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. Uh, now, the way that Ludeman explains it is he says, well, Peter must have really felt bad that he had betrayed Jesus, that he had denied him, as we have recorded in the Gospels. And so he projected this grief hallucination and then became convinced that that grief hallucination had indeed raised from the dead. And to me, that's so an extraordinary claim. Um, grief hallucinations, people, when they have a grief hallucination, they don't reason that that person is resurrected because grief hallucinations do occur. Uh, it also doesn't explain how James changed his mind. It doesn't explain what happened to Paul. Uh, and it also doesn't explain the evidence for an empty tomb, which is certainly implied in 1 Corinthians 15 when it talks in the Greek, agero, to be raised again, Anastasius, be, to resurrect. This, the whole implication here is of a bodily corporeal resurrection, by implication, an empty tomb. If the body was still in the tomb, the Romans would have been able to produce it and shut the whole thing down. 
could know, it exploded throughout the Roman Empire from that point. Now, it seems to me that a priori, you're just not open to considering the possibility that something far outside of your plausibility structure has occurred. But I don't think that that in itself is indicative of rationality. I think that's indicative of close-mindedness because the world may be very different than you or I currently believe. And you have okay, to be let me, let me, up, let me answer. Let me answer because there's so much you've covered and now we're getting accusatory. So let me chime in and tell you, uh, I'm definitely not close-minded. Um, I am open to the most rational response to each thing that you're talking about. When we say that this person really believes it, is it rational that a dead guy came back to life and floated to a, a spiritual realm and disintegrated? Or is it rational that he was convinced by someone else to believe that? Okay, way more rational to believe he was convinced than a dead Jew came back to life and floated to heaven. So I'm not close-minded. I'm just leaning toward the most rational uh, answer for these things. The same is true for it being passed down for years and years. I've already addressed that. We constantly pass down misinformation. And there were several more things I was going to respond to, but uh, there was just so much there I forgot. But I'm sure if you reiterate some of your arguments, I'll be able to respond. But I, I'm definitely not close-minded to this. And honestly, it sounds like what you're, what you're reiterating is other people really believe it, so it must be true. And I, I just, Randall, I don't know how that can be taken seriously at all. Uh, if other people strongly believe it and they pass it down, you don't know if they were lying. You don't know if they were changing. I know if you've done your research, which you obviously have, you're familiar with the story of, of, of Jesus saying, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Most Christians are. Christians talk about that all the time. And you probably know, just like I do, that was not in the original. That was added many years later, and many people call it a forgery, right? So, and then, and then super devout Christians will say, no, 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 if it's in the scripture, then God, you know, approved it. It's got God's stamp of approval. It's still God's word. So is all scripture God, God breathed as Peter wrote or uh, to Timothy, or is it, is it that you can add stuff later and, and then it's just accepted as God's word because it made it into the Bible. There are definitely things in the Bible that we're missing. There are things where we only have uh, something the size of a credit card on the page and then an unknown scribe filled in the rest based on what they think the person was trying to get at. There is tons of research on holes in scripture, things missing about scripture. And I think it's irrational to believe that these random unknown scribes are speaking for God, especially when this book was written over 1600 years by 43 different people in three different languages. So I still haven't heard other than other people really believe it. I still have not heard your rational defense for a dead person coming back to life, floating to heaven and disintegrating to a spiritual world. Somebody else believing it's not good enough for me. Yeah, I so I that's a okay, that's a straw man. I my argument has not and never been a lot of people believe it, so it must be true. No, in that's fact, what, said, what I've done is no, what I did is I first of all rebutted your claim about the telephone game or the possibility of legendary change by giving immediate temporal proximity and geographic proximity to the events in the 30s. That's where the creed arose. I pointed out that there is a rabbinic context of the passing on of tradition, that they did not willy-nilly innovate right. on Other tradition. people believe it and other people they, said it. They that's what you're saying. They passed on what they received. I pointed out that this was a revolution in the way Jews thought, that you have to explain how they completely, the early Christians changed their understanding 
of the Messiah so that a crucified person, which was traditionally considered to be a cursed person, and crucifixion being the most horrific way and, and shameful way to die in the ancient world, that that person, in fact, was Messiah. You have to explain that. You talked about how, well, in the Gospels, the idea of, of Jesus as being divine, this high view of Jesus, evolved gradually. Well, you know what? I cited 1 Corinthians 15, right? Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says, For us there is what one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. What he is doing there is he's taking the Jewish Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, and he's now inserting Jesus within that confession. He uses the Greek word kurios for Lord, which was in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. That was the word commonly used to apply to God. And he includes that to use it for Jesus and puts it into the Shema, showing that the early Christians like Paul were now at the point of equating Jesus on the level of God the Father. These were the most rigorous, devout monotheists in the ancient world. And one of them, who initially was persecuting Christians, had an experience. And he completely changed his mind and believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. And 20 years later, he's describing Jesus as divine in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Right. For so that other kind of data, you don't so just wave your hand and it says, well, you just believe a lot of people believe it, so it must be true. No, you actually have to roll up your sleeves, look at the evidence, and look at all the possible hypotheses. Oh, the, evident, the data that you're talking about? is people saying they believe it. You're, it's a fancy way for you to say, a lot of people believed it and wrote it down 3,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, and now I believe it too. That's just not good enough for me, Randall. I, I don't, th that doesn't make someone dead for three days, coming back to life, suddenly a rational belief because other people wrote it down. It doesn't matter if there were four or 40 or 400 that believed it. There were 918 people that believed Jim Jones was the Messiah enough to kill themselves by drinking the Kool-Aid. So a lot, a lot of people believing something irrational happens all the time with humans. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's suddenly rational to believe in the Christian God because people a long time ago believed it and wrote it down. I'm just... That's not convincing to me. And this is, and that's just the New Testament stuff. What about the Old Testament? What about this idea that God loves humanity, but was sending plagues down and, and you know, hardened the Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9, and then later, when the, so that he wouldn't listen to, to Moses and Aaron, and then later when he wouldn't listen, God in his infinite wisdom decided to start killing the firstborn of everybody in the Pharaoh's village in order to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go when God hardened his heart in the first place. How is this a God of love doing this? To people and sending plagues and, and treating people like this and you know burning Sodom and Gomorrah and, and calling Lot uh, 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 a man of God when he offered his two daughters up to be raped by the villagers to save angels. I mean, so much about, I don't mean to gish gallop, I'm going to let you respond, but so much about this is irrational. That's, it's not just the New Testament, other people believed it and wrote it down, so I believe that it's also the very concept, as Dan Barker calls it, a married bachelor. Is God loving, or is God a torturous maniac who is setting cities on fire? Uh, he in himself contradicts his own, his own properties. He has mutually um, exclusive properties that are all at attached to him that also make him unbelievable and irrational to believe in. Uh, that was a gish gallop, but I've done my own galloping this evening, so I'll let it slide. Uh, now, I said in my opening statement that um, to defend the rationality of Christianity is not to defend any particular interpretation. And, and so that would certainly apply to some of the debates, let's say, about how to understand the Old Testament. So, for example, the book uh, I mentioned at the beginning, 
conversations with my inner atheists, there's a chapter in there on how do you understand biblical violence in terms, particularly I focus there on Torah violence. Uh, there's also a chapter on how do you understand natural disasters? Does God punitively interact with people, punishing people through natural disasters? And I take some critical perspectives on that that are different from many other Christians. So I think we would definitely be down a rabbit hole if we got into some of those topics, because those are intramural Christian debates. What I've, we've been talking about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is right at the heart of Christianity, and that's what makes it especially relevant. Um, okay, so... Let me ask real quick, was, was the debate topic Christianity or was it the Christian God? James, can you confirm that? Christian belief more broadly. Okay. Like I think in one of my the opening email I had that it was, is the belief in the Christian God rational? But I yeah, just interpret that as belief in Christianity being rational. So I think okay. we- I, I, I think so. So a lot of times Christians will challenge me to say, you know, you're, you know, what what posit, like you can't prove God doesn't exist. And that's an old, I don't know, you don't say that, but- um, one of the comments I make back to that is, well, the more specific about you get, the, sorry, the more specific you get about your God, the more attributes you you align, um, the more confidently I can say with positivity that that's impossible for that God to exist. So I don't know what brand of God you believe in. I don't know if you're if you're a Christian, but you're more like, well, there are a lot of mistakes in the Old Testament. I don't really believe God did all those things. I think the New Testament is word for word, but the Old Testament isn't. I hear from all different kinds of Christians on my show, so I don't really know where your branding is. But I think that if you believe every word in the Bible literally, it is impossible that that God exists, and that would be a positive claim because of the contradicting principles, right? But you're right. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. I think that— the, the, Bible, the Bible is a diverse library of genre of literature to talk about— a yep. single hermeneutic, a single mode of interpreting everything literally is just absurdity. No, uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I it, agree. it is absurdity that you will find that sometimes among Christian fundamentalists, which is why I wanted to be clear at the outset, we're not talking about that. Right. Like Genesis, yeah. Genesis alone reads very much like poetry. Uh, there's no way that was being literal to say this happened, this happened, this happened. It's clearly poetry. It's like, you know, on day one, when I met you, the stars, you know, entered my heart. It's, it's supposed to be poetic. And the original language, if you, if you even just look at it and can't read it, you'll see that it's very much structured as poetry. But there are people who, you know, fight to the death defending that every literal word is the word of God. And, yeah, yeah and Genesis 1 is, is uh, it's poetry in the sense of structured language. It's a cosmogonic creation narrative. There's there's a clear structure there. It should not be interpreted literally. There are first three days are three days of structure and creation. The next three are three days of filling. So yeah, that's a, just an anachronism to read it in terms of a modern newspaper account. Do you think that naturalism can be rational? I think it's the most rational position because I I I, I can't I can't listen. I want to be clear that I'm not some absolutist that says, like, I consider myself an agnostic atheist. I'm always open to evidence. So me saying that it's the only position that it will ever be true is dogmatic. And so that's not my position. My position is with, with the evidence I have, this is the most reasonable thing to believe. For example, I have a friend in North Carolina worth millions and millions of dollars. He's a donor. He's an executive uh, producer for movies. He's a very wealthy man. If he were to call me and say, hey man, I just bought a new Ferrari, you should come check it out. He could be lying, but he, it's rational to believe him, right? Um, but if my mother 
who is a retired woman at, you know, in her sixties, um, who is, who just barely paid her house off so she could have some, some relaxation in retirement were to call me and say, Hey, I just bought a Ferrari. It would not be rational to believe her. She could be telling the truth. She could have gotten a great deal. She could have taken out a massive loan. She could have won the lottery and I didn't know about it, but it would be rational for me to believe my rich friend and irrational for me to believe my mother. Would you agree with all of that? Well, let me just focus on the naturalism question uh, without wanting to get- I, I, just, I, I was gonna finish that, I just wanna know, would you agree with that? Uh, well, there can be defeaters to a claim about you know, owning a particular kind of car in that, which is why rationality is always a contextualized judgment, as I said in my opening statement. Okay, but, but, but simply put, wouldn't it be more rational, would it be rational to believe the rich guy and not rational to believe the elderly woman who just retired? I mean, I think it's a pretty clear cut yes. I don't- Sure, all things being okay. equal, yeah. Okay, all right. So my, all I'm saying is when we go back into time and think about who wrote those scriptures, we don't know if they were the rich guy or the recently retired woman. We don't know. Okay. And a, a guest yeah. I just had on my, my podcast the other day, John Gary, talked about a situation where he saw in a Pentecostal church someone in his family um, – write down ahead of time what she was going to say in tongues and then write down ahead of time what that translation was going to be. And then the following day, he saw her perform it in church. And I said, what did that make you feel? How did you think about it? He's like, well, I thought about how she lived her life and how she was being incredulous to the faith and all this other stuff. And I said, well, hold on. And here's the same question I have for you. We know that people abuse the faith. We know that people lie about being about God talking to them and them saying God said this and we can't prove it. How do we know who was writing this stuff down? Were they people were they were they people like his relative? Were they people making claims that weren't true at all? Did they have political agendas to control women like Paul clearly did? and control populations. Women aren't allowed to speak in church. It is shameful for women to speak. If a woman is to talk, she, if a woman has questions, she should go home and ask her husband. All this is in the same book of, of, of Corinthians that you're talking about here. First Corinthians, I think 14, 33 and 34, and then first Timothy two eleven and 12. Yeah, have you ever, all, all written like, by have Paul, you, where he's very demeaning. Have you Jesus in first Corinthians 14? Are you familiar with the context of that? I am, I am, I am, I am. My point is Paul okay. clearly had, so, a, so had an agenda. All of the um, other just, people. Just really quick, let's let's have uh, David finish his point here, and then uh, Dr. Rouser, you can respond. Can I, yeah, Thank just you. say, just call me Randall. Okay. That's, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, every doctor I've ever met hates being called doctor, so I always just refer to them by their first name, which is why I'm doing yeah. that for Randall today. Um, but uh, I'll say that um, basically what I'm getting at is when we look into, we know Paul had an agenda. We, we know that some people could have an agenda. We know Paul did have one. And we don't know about the other authors. So we don't know if they were credible. We don't know if they were the Dr. Fauci of their time or if they were the crazy guy sh screaming nonsense on the corner that we completely ignore. Because a lot of the things that are in the book, a lot of the things that preachers say in churches, if he was standing on a street corner screaming it, a dead guy just woke up, you need to worship him we would walk past that guy and just not make eye contact, right? But because it was written down in a book 2000 years ago, it becomes more solidified and then we believe it. But at the end of the day, there's no evidence to support it other than other people wrote it down and really believed it. And that's just not good enough for me to suddenly mean, to suddenly believe that it's now considered rational. And that's my position in this debate. It is still irrational, even though other people believed it. 
we're going to, this might be a good time. I'm sorry. I know that Randall, that you've got another round in the chamber ready to fire, but uh, just because oh, we don't do that to him. Oh no. But just because we, we had a uh, Randall start, we'll switch over now into the Q and a want to th say thanks so much for your questions, folks. Both of our guests are linked in the description folks. So if you're listening and you're like, Hey, I want to hear more. You can hear more. That's why I put those links down there just for you. And what I'm going to do is I'm sending over the first half of the questions to Carissa right now. And what I will do is as she is reading those, I will also be kind of wrangling in the other questions. I'm having some challenges with the copy and paste with uh, over here for some reason, but I will read the first one. So Carissa, I just sent those over to you and I'll read the first question. This one comes in from Michael, the Canadian atheist. Thanks for your question. Michael says, how do you reconcile the errors in the Bible, i.e. global flood, people made from dirt or a resurrection? How did you go about rationalizing, quote-unquote, the things we we know can't happen. I think that's for you, Randall. Okay, well, in terms of resurrection, I've certainly provided arguments, uh, initial preliminary arguments as to the historical evidence that there would be for a resurrection. Uh, in terms of, um, so people coming from dirt or something, well, I think that Genesis 2 should not be understood as a newspaper account. Uh, I think that it's it is, as David used the language, poetic. I think that's that's fair. So uh, it's describing the human beings emerging from the earth. In fact, many theistic evolutionists or Christians who believe that God created through evolution believe that's a good metaphor for the origin of human beings. Uh, likewise, when it comes to Genesis 6 to 9, which is the flood narrative, I think the, the, the casual reader will often miss some of the, the bigger picture of the flood narrative. I don't think that you should interpret that. See, certainly Genesis 1 to 11 is often considered what we would sort of call a prehistory. It's an etiology, which is laying down sort of foundations of the origins of things. And I think the primary focus of, of uh, the global flood story of Noah uh, is that we have to understand it's what we call a chiasm. Now in, in Hebrew, a chiasm is a literary structure which kind of goes A, B, C, B, A. And so then C at the center is the one idea at the center. That's the main point. And in uh, Genesis chapter eight, verse one, it says God remembered Noah, and that is the center of a vast three-chapter chiasm, and that's overall message. Not to get hung up on trying to read this literally as the flood literally inundating the earth, because it is written against the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern Hebrew cosmology, which we don't accept today. David alluded earlier to something called the Rakia, a hard dome that holds the waters above the ocean, the ocean in the sky up above the earth, and that is what floods in the narrative. We have to understand that's written within the context of an ancient Near Eastern understanding of science. So you have to uh, have the proper understanding of the text. But if you do that, I think you find that there's a lot more going on there than people initially surprised. You bet. Thank you. David, did you want to add anything to that? or, or uh, I, I, ju I, just, I just want to thank the, the, the person for, uh, for, for asking that question. I think it, it just points out that um, for most atheists, the Bible becomes less credible. And those things like that, like saying that the sun froze in the sky or that, you know, there was a, that there were ev three evenings and mornings before there was ever a moon and a sun. Like these little things that many Christians will go, well, it's the context or well, it's poetry or well, it's this or that. All of those things, while even like what color was the robe Jesus was wearing? Some say purple, some say scarlet. Like you may roll your eyes and go, that's not a big deal. Like who knows? But 
all of these things do add up for atheists. And at some point we go, this book is making an extraordinary claim, but it's wrong or argues with itself on so many other points. I probably wouldn't believe it even if it was right about everything else, but it's wrong about so many things, including, you know, talking animals, like a donkey in Balaam had a conversation on the road to Damascus with a talking serpent. So when the Bible does make these little errors or contradictions, that chips away at how credible the book is to believe, especially when it makes a claim like a dead man woke up and floated. Thank you so much, David. Um, the next question we have, our comment is from JMD Apologetics. Be sure not to miss my after show. So be sure to check that out. Um, Tom's chair is the next comment. He says, if God shows up, it's game over. No more debates. It's um, it is not more rational to believe that theists knows know things, um, and they keep us chasing the string. Question mark. If you have I love any, that you said I love that you said the question mark. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part about that whole thing. <laughs> Just to clarify, it's a question. If if you guys it have anything, like it's, it sounds like an atheist making the argument of divine hiddenness, which is probably for Randall. So I'll let him respond. I think he's saying like, if God, if God just showed up, it would be over. There'd be no more debate. So why doesn't he do it? And whatever it is that would convince me, God knows what it is. Why doesn't he just make it obvious like he did, you know, with, with doubting Thomas and, and that whole thing. So I, I think that was my interpretation that it was probably a divine hiddenness argument if Randall wants to respond. Okay, well, divine hiddenness, so that was a, an argument originally developed by John L. Schellenberg, a Canadian philosopher, and I'm actually, he gave an endorsement to one of my books as well, and um, he wrote a little book, if you're interested in the hiddenness argument, called The Hiddenness Argument, which I would recommend, and I've actually got a, you know, a review of that book in which I offer a rebuttal of the central claim. Uh, the basic idea, I mean, it, it would take us a little far afield here, but I would just say that um, God can have sufficient reasons for revealing himself gradually within creation, just like, let's say, a parent can have sufficient reasons for gradually revealing themselves to specific individuals. That'd be a, a really quick one. Thank you, Randall. Um, next question we have is from RIB. If I have kids, I'll tell them what I believe and what other theists believe. What's wrong with that if I'm not persuading them either way? Well, I think as a as a parent, regardless of your worldview, your responsibility is to lead your child down the best path that you see, right? So when Christians take their kids to church and say, I believe in God, I think they're probably doing what they think is best for their child. And I've, I've uh, helped many atheists sort of let go of their anger for their parents because the atheist would write me and say, I'm so mad at my mom and dad for lying to me all these years. And I would say, look, they were doing the best for you that they thought they could with the knowledge they had. Um, and I think all of us as parents, that's our responsibility and that's our job. So, so teaching your kids what you think is best is one thing. The thing that sets us apart is atheists often, or many humanists often, encourage their children to challenge authority. Challenge it, fact check it, look it up. What do you think? And we sort of get them started at an early age on being rational, uh, debating, having little worldview discussions and arguments about the existence of certain things and the existence of different gods as to where in the Christian bubble, um, 
challenging authority is a huge no-no. The, the preacher is, you're not going to raise your hand and challenge him or ask questions. Um, oftentimes it's whatever, you know, you did something and you go, why? Because I said so. I was raised in that Christian household and I, I it's not just anecdotal. And the many emails that I've received from my atheist listeners have confirmed that. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a pretty spot on question, but uh, I, I agree. There's nothing wrong with teaching your child what you think is best. Just be sure for the sake of humanity, remember that your job is to teach your child how to live without you, right? That's ultimately what you want. It's a productive human that you leave behind when you're gone. You don't want that person quite, you know, just believing blindly whatever someone with authority tells them. You want to teach them how to think, not what to think. So allow them to challenge you respectfully. That's my plea for that. Gotcha. We do have to, I, I can jump in because I've got the questions. Uh, what we'll probably do is, unless absolutely necessary, we can like have some exceptions. If someone wants to give kind of a counter response to a question, we can do that. Otherwise, what we'll probably do is just have one person per question on each one. But Randall, I have a feeling you might have had a, a response to that last one. I, I might be reading you wrong, though. Let me know if I am. I always have a response. Uh, no, I, I would I would just say that, like, I wrote a, a book called You're Not As Crazy As I Think, in which I outlined what proper education looks like in contrast to indoctrination, and I've sought to implement those principles within my household. And in that book, I when I outline the main hallmarks of indoctrination, I point out that a lot of indoctrination does occur within the secular community, in particular with the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, as opposed to someone like my friend J.L. Schellenberg, the divine hiddenness guy. So I think that these are problems that occur in every doxastic or belief community. And what we need to be really careful of is, is having, always think about the other guy and you know their community is indoctrinated because that can blur, blind us to the indoctrination in our own community. And I, I know that David's had and other people have had experiences with churches that were insular and almost maybe even cultic in their orientation. That was not my experience. And that's not the experience of many other people. It's certainly not essential to Christianity. Gotcha. And I'm literally, if I, if I could just say real quick, any questions that you don't have time to get to, I just want to throw this out there publicly. If you have more questions than you can get to, feel free to send them to me. I'll be happy to have Randall on my podcast, and we can use those questions as a jumping point for a conversation. Absolutely. For sure. And we will definitely pl plug that for you folks. So, Next question. This one comes in from Michael, who says they're coming at you hard, David. They said, what study do you have that shows indoctrination is more common among Christians? Do you prefer, this is sassy, they say, do you prefer science over confirmation bias influenced anecdotes? <laughs> That's a fair point. There is no study about, as far as I know of, on indoctrination. What I can tell you is, and I've been an activist in the atheist community since around 2008. Uh, I started my started writing my book in uh, the end of 2007 or so, and actually came public. Uh, finished the book in 2010 and published it. And around 2009, I became the editor of American Atheist Magazine, was editor of Secular World Magazine. And I've been involved on some level, speaking, doing podcasts, videos, whatever, for that, that 10 to 12 year mark. I can tell you that I have literally heard from hundreds, if not thousands of atheists who say, I'm terrified to tell my mom, I don't believe I am. If I tell my mom, I'm going to, my college funding is going to get cut off. Um, gay kids 
17, 16, 17, 18 years old, um, being forced to go to gay reparative therapy, which the APA has absolutely condemned and said it's horrific and harmful. That's been enforced by fundamental Christian households. Um, they're not allowed to be their own person. And they reach out to me and say, help me. I'm proud to say that my show has had a massive impact on several people's lives because they, they, it, it empowers them to be their own person, to finally speak up to their father, mother, grandparent, or whomever, and say, this is how I believe, or this is how I don't believe, and I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with being gay. I'm okay with being a woman who wants to be a preacher. I've heard from female Christians who say my show has empowered them to become a pastor or a preacher, even though their, their, their church wouldn't allow it. Gotcha. I yep. have yet, I have yet to hear, let me finish this real quick. I promise the concept of an atheist saying, or a, 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 a Christian saying, I'm so terrified that my dad's a skeptic and I can't tell him I went to church with my boyfriend. It might happen. It might be out there. I've literally never heard of that. So uh, for me, and I, I suppose it's anecdotal, but over a 12 year span, speaking with hundreds and thousands of atheists and hearing their, their heartfelt stories of being kicked out of their homes, of being beaten over this stuff, over being uh, you know, forced to do things they didn't wanna do and having their funds. Christian parents taking, Christian grandparents taking the children of atheists and baptizing them behind their backs. There's at least 400 of those stories in my history and then fights and being kicked out of things, not being allowed to come to Christmas, not being allowed to come. I, I, I can't even imagine an atheist having a party for a holiday and not allowing someone to come because they are a Christian. Gotcha. It just doesn't seem to happen in the reverse. I would be happy to do a study. I would be happy to be a part of the story. The world I live in, it's completely slanted in one direction. Gotcha. So sorry. We we've got to just because I'm so sorry that the the location that I'm streaming at. I've got to we've got to maybe uh kind of run through these questions that we have as fast as possible. Uh, go ahead, Carissa. Okay. Um, Sunflower says, David, I didn't hear a coherent response on the rationality of moral realism. You seem heavily flustered and frantic. Is moral realism irrational? Oh, no, there's nothing frantic or frustrated about that or flustered, I guess. It, it was mostly that it was completely off topic from the purpose of the discussion. And as a host of my own show, I know what the hosts of this show were probably thinking when the conversation takes a, a right turn somewhere. And so I, I wanted to get us back on the topic. Um, I'll be happy to have Randall on and talk about moral realism and, and um, uh, even objective morality, because I'm one of the few atheists who is completely fine with saying there is there are certain things that are objectively morally true. And a lot of atheists are not willing to take that position. So I'm, I may not be the right person that you think I am to discuss moral realism because I'm not the standard in the standard atheist mindset when it comes to that. In fact, I've had debates on my show with other atheists on, on subjective morality versus objective morality and moral realism. So uh, this debate just wasn't set up for that. So that's not the part of the topic. So I'll be happy to have Randall on my show and talk about it on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And then Rib, thanks for your question. Who said to Randall, how do you know anything in the Bible actually happened? I understand that you believe it, but how do you know it happened exactly how it's stated? Hey, uh, I'm going to uh, do something a little bit cheeky and then answer that. So I will just note that 
If you want to look at a sociological study of atheists in America with respect to rationality and so on, there are a couple sociologists, David Williamson and George Yancey, that publish a book called There Is No God, Atheists in America. And they do actual statistical uh, study and, and a lot of interviews, and they provide a lot of evidence through a sociological framework for indoctrination. Um, and, you know, it's less than paradigmatic rationality, we'll say. Now, in terms of this uh, person's question, I think that, that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. So um, I've been here discussing, uh, I mean, what the main topic we had in terms of the truth of Christian claims in the Bible is the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, that's the whole ball game. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. Um, so that that's what we really need to focus on. And in terms of how can you be historically justified in believing that Jesus died and rose again? I mean, I offered a very quick argument to that effect based upon 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians chapter 1. And I do think that if you look at the evidence for all the data I laid out and look at all the alternative hypotheses, then you will not find a hypothesis that is as strong as the one that God raised Jesus from the dead. But I'm not even arguing that here. All I'm arguing is that you could at least rationally believe that, which I certainly think you can. Thank you so much. Um, Jay Shai, David, do you honestly think it's rational to compare pagan myths to a historical person? And do you not think Aquinas used reasoning? I don't know that we can prove that Jesus was a historical person. Um, there are a growing number of mythicists who are not in the majority, but do have interesting evidence in that realm. So um, you have, uh, yes, yes, I think it's rational to compare the two because they're both based on faith. They just are. At the end of the day, Randall has is very educated. He's a very smart guy. I would love to have him on my podcast, but he has very fancy ways of saying I believe it because a lot of other people believed it and wrote it down. And since these different people wrote things down that all, that coincide with each other, that makes it more true and it just doesn't. And you don't have to be able to defend methodological naturalism or moral realism and all of these traps that they set for you in order to know that it's irrational to believe that a dead guy came back to life and floated to a spiritual realm that that those things don't even play into that argument so yes the the reason it seems more rational to think that a virgin gave birth and then that baby grew up to then be killed and then wake up and float um that seems more rational because likely you were taught that at a very, very young age. So you believe that because that's a part of your core belief system from when you were in that sponge-like state when your brain was absorbing everything as fact. And then you get 27 years old and you hear about the Mormons and that God has his own planet, Kolob, and you go, that's insane. Well, what's different about that than a virgin giving birth and a guy being dead and coming back to life and floating? The difference is the time at which you were taught it. So yes, if you can pull yourself out of your own bias for a moment and realize that these are all different religious beliefs that people are taught from a young age, you'll start to see that these myths show a pattern of things that are impossible to happen, yet many people believe they did. So I think it's perfectly on board to compare those different myths. Now, James, you said I can. We can possibly squeak in a response. I just want to squeak in here, a little response here, here. here. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so David said, "Well, there are Jesus mythicists, and so that's sufficient reason to doubt maybe that Jesus even existed." Ninety-nine percent plus 
of New Testament scholars, of classic scholars, of ancient historians believe Jesus existed. It's an overwhelming consensus. In terms of mythicists, you have Richard Carrier and Raphael Latester are the only two individuals who have ever published even a peer-reviewed book on the topic. Robert Price is also a Jesus mythicist, and then there are a few other popular ones like David Fitzgerald, and then a lot of atheist YouTubers. Every one of those individuals is an atheist activist. They all do public debates. They speak out in favor of atheism. If that less than 1% of atheist activists is a sufficient reason to doubt that Jesus even existed, I think that's a good example of David's confirmation bias. Okay, I have, I have, a, I have a response to that very briefly. Um, so the 99.9% .9 argument is used quite often. And I just wanna say that uh, the vast majority of New Testament scholars work at Christian universities. And those Christian universities require these scholars to sign statements of faith in order to be hired and in order to keep their jobs. So if a person starts to doubt their belief or then comes out and says they no longer believe the Bible is true, they could literally lose their job for it. I'm not saying most of them don't believe it, but when we throw out statistics like 99.9%, first of all, I'd love to see that study. And secondly, we have to acknowledge that they are forced to sign statement of faiths in order to keep their jobs. So that's a little different than just discounting this as some weird yeah. YouTube theory. I said, that's, I don't know yeah. if Jesus existed or not. I said, I, I don't know. I do want to, I doubt a, it. Overall. I do, that's a conspiracy. I do, forgive me. I do. I, I hate to interrupt. I do want to give David the last word just because uh, that, that super chat, if I remember right, was originally challenging David. Uh, we do have another one. And I'm so sorry guys, but I promise if you guys do do another discussion on David's, podcast or anywhere else we will seriously plug it so our audience can hear it because i know that we are i hate doing that to you guys where we're you know kind of cutting it short so jay shy has the next question who says people have not witnessed miracles in islam people didn't perform miracles and islam contradicts the early church fathers and the bible i'm not sure oh, who there that's are... for. no 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 there, there are uh, i think i think randall will agree there are muslims who us claim to have seen miracles so i mean there are muslims who are willing to fly airplanes into buildings for their belief i mean if you're talking about a strong conviction of belief they literally some of the extremists will be willing to blow themselves up and kill themselves for their belief so if you talk about people being willing to die for their belief in the bible this is an extreme version i mean i, I that's why i don't consider that evidence because most of the arguments um that other than separate corroborating texts or like the Apostles' Creed, most of the evidence that Randall brought up today, that same argument could be used by a Muslim in an, in an atheist debate to say a lot of people really believe it, a lot of people are willing to die for it, therefore it's more likely true and it's rational to believe it. And I just don't think that's, that's sufficient evidence to, con evidence to consider it rational. Gotcha. And oh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, Michael says, David, quote, a guy just writing or saying things is no evidence, end quote, without realizing that his very statement is just something a guy said. Yeah, but that's, again, that goes back to the, the um, what's at stake, right? I mean, again, it's back to the Ferrari analogy. Yeah, that's my opinion. But if you don't believe my opinion, I'm not going to throw you into a lake of fire. You're going to be fine. You cannot believe me. You can disagree with me. It's okay. I'm not going to threaten you under the, under the threat of duress that if, if you don't believe me, terrible things are going to happen to you for eternity. But if you 
want me to believe that your God created all of this, died for my sins so that I won't be thrown into a lake of fire, you should have extreme evidence for your extreme accusation. And then, gotcha. Thanks so much. Carissa, can you read the next one? I've got a, for some reason, I'm not plugged in. Thanks for your help. Yeah, 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 of course. Next one is from Stupid Horror Energy for Randall doesn't Isaiah 53 mention a servant who will suffer and then see the light of light. So the Jews did expect a dying Messiah. No. Uh, so Isaiah 53 was interpreted by Jews, uh, the suffering servant, as referring to Israel, not to a specific Messiah. Uh, the revolution of identifying that passage with a suffering Messiah comes with the time of Jesus and the early Christians. Prior to that, Isaiah 52, 53 was understood to apply to Israel. Gotcha. Thank you for your last question. This comes in. I think this is the last one we did have. I think it was Kirby said, hi, Carissa. So saying <laughs> hello to you out there. And then hey. we have one. This is Michael says, uh, this is another one of those like quote and then quote. Uh, Michael says, David says, I don't believe it just because a lot of people claim it. And then says, also, David, I believe Christianity is more dogmatic because a lot of people email me and claim it. Yeah, that's true. Um, so that's a fair point. I mean, that's my actual life experience. Like I literally have the emails from hundreds of people that I've saved over the years who have said these things to me. I have raised money on my show as a fundraiser to help a gay 18 year old man move out of his home because they're trying to force him to go to gay reparative therapy against his will uh, again. He'd already been before and they thought they fixed his gayness. Um, I've helped people actively overcome the abuse of religion. There is an organization out there called Recovering From Religion. I, I, I strongly suggest you look them up, recoveringfromreligion.org. They help people um, come out of the abusive mindset that religious people often go through. Now that's not to say every religious household is abusive, but it is to say that there is a lot of trauma that is, uh, whether it's to do with sexual identity, um, shame, modesty, um, you know, you're, you're considered a whore if you, if you wear a skirt, different levels, right? Different schisms within Christianity are gonna be more strict, but there are entire organizations dedicated to helping people overcome the abuse they've suffered at religion. I've yet to see one uh, because of the abuse suffered at the hands of atheism. So when you're talking about my experiences right now in life, helping people overcome religion, having a negative impact in their life, that is undeniably true. You can come with me. We can experience it together. The evidence, the data is in the inbox. The, the evidence and data is in thousands of hours of recordings of people who have been on my show who have confirmed this, and you can hear it for yourself right now. That is in no way comparable to a text written down 2,000 years ago by anonymous people who we have no idea what their scope or purpose was, or even if the people they were talking about really existed. The same is happening with Moses now. More and more rabbinical scholars are saying Moses didn't really exist as a real person. You wanna talk about religious scholars coming to consensus on something, more and more people are saying Moses was, more and more rabbinical scholars are now saying Moses was likely a figure 
um, a, a, a fictional character to, 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 to drive a point home. Well, well, okay, that's nowhere near what's actually happening in real life that we have data for right now that you can experience. So the two aren't even close to being comparable. Gotcha. Thank you very much. I want to say, folks, remember, each of our speakers are linked in the description. We really appreciate both of these guys coming on. They So please, I want to remind you, folks, in the, the comments afterwards, we had some debates last week that were... They were pretty abrasive, and sometimes the comments were abrasive. And so we want to remind you, by all means, attack the arguments and attack the ideas. We want to encourage you, though, to please consider just attacking the arguments, the ideas, and not the person. Because we really appreciate that David and Randall have come on. It's been a true pleasure. So I do want to say one final thank you to David and Randall. Thank you very much. We've really enjoyed having you on. Thank you for having me, and thank you to Randall as well. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you, Carissa, for helping out tonight. It's been a total help. means a lot. And like I said, folks, she has also been a debater on here, and so you can check that out. I think it was just last week you had the, the uh, one with CJ. So Yep. Absolutely. So, by the way, thank and I will, I will link Carissa in the description as well. So, folks... Thanks for that, and uh, we hope you guys keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable, and have a great rest of your night. All right, we're... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.